I've been on holidays the last couple of Sundays, so it's great to be back. Uh, as good as holidays are, it's uh, wonderful to be back with your true church family, uh, and especially because we're getting back to Matthew's Gospel tonight. So I hope you remember last year when we went into lockdown and we were doing snack at home, we, uh, we started looking at Matthew's Gospel together. We got up to chapter 13. And the reason we did that at the time is because with everything going on with COVID and all that sort of thing, we thought we just want to be reminded of the basics, of the wonderful truth of the Gospel. And that's what the Gospels are. It's in the name They are the good news about Jesus. That's what it is as we look at Matthew's Gospel. In many ways, the four Gospels should be our bread and butter. That's what they are. Uh, They're our staple diet, if you like. So over the last six months or so, we've sort of been having the exotic fare of the book of Revelation. Now we're back to good old, you know, meat and three veg, if you will, the Gospels. So picking up the story, Matthew 14, have your Bibles open. If you don't have a Bible, wake up your hand and someone will get one to you. You want to be able to follow along, but I'm going to pray. Uh, before we look at it together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Matthew's Gospel, for the way it so clearly gives us this wonderful picture of Jesus and the Gospel that he preached. And so we pray that as we look at Matthew's Gospel together tonight and then over these coming months, we will be reminded again of how amazing our Lord Jesus really is and how wonderful the grace he has shown us is. And we pray in his name. Amen. Having talked about Matthew's Gospel being our bread and butter, today's passage is actually about two meals, uh, two famous meals really. By my calculation, uh, unless you're on one of those fasting diets or something like that, you, uh, you might eat about 100,000 meals in your life, but very few of them are memorable. You might remember uh, a few, you might remember a special birthday dinner, you might remember you know, a, a wedding you went to, that sort of thing. I remember one meal in particular it wasn't my own wedding, it was someone else's wedding. I was at the wedding reception and it was a 10-course Chinese banquet. When I heard that that's what we were getting, I was looking forward to that wedding for a long time. It wasn't because I was preaching, it was because of the meal afterwards. But uh, the second course was abalone and I'd never had abalone before and it was whole abalone. I thought, I don't know what to do with this. So I threw it in my mouth, started chewing and it was sort of like chewing on a rubber plug. And uh, It actually acted as a rubber plug. It went over my windpipe and I couldn't breathe. So everyone thought I was joking. They thought I was just carrying on and I'm there. And every time I'd cough it up, I'd then take a breath and suck it back down and stop breathing again. And so I was going blue at the table and then Victoria realized there was something happening here. And eventually I coughed it up across the table and onto the middle of the table, a half chewed up rubber plug of abalone. That was a memorable meal for the 10 other people at my table that night. So, but anyway, I reckon anyone who was at either of these meals that we read about in Matthew 14, they would never forget it. The first meal, because it was so horrible, uh, and the second meal, because it was so wonderful. So let's look at these two very different meals. So the first meal, which is Herod's birthday feast, come with me to verses 1 to 12. This one shines a light onto the worst of human sinfulness. Okay, so come with me to verse 1. It says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. Now, the Herods get confusing. There's lots of them. This is not the Herod who tried to have Jesus killed as a baby. That was Herod the Great. He was dead by now. And this was one of his sons when he died. His kingdom got broken up into three. And this son, Herod, was ruling the area around Galilee, where Jesus was doing most of his preaching and most of his miracles. Uh, So Herod hears about this preacher, this miracle worker, uh, and he gets worried. Look at verse 2. He says, this is John the Baptist. 
He's been raised from the dead and that's why supernatural powers are at work in him. And you might think, why on earth does he leap from hearing about a preacher and miracle worker to this must be someone raised from the dead? Well, you've got to sort of go back and remember John the Baptist from earlier in Matthew's Gospel. John the Baptist was the last of the great prophets. And the Old Testament had talked about him. We read it in the book of Malachi, our Old Testament reading. It had said this man would come before Jesus to prepare the way for Jesus. So he preached, repent, turn away from your sins and get ready for the one who's coming after me who is better than me. So be ready for Jesus. Now still we might think why on earth would Herod jump to the conclusion that this is John the Baptist raised from the dead? Well, it's because Herod had had John killed. He'd had him put to death. So this was sort of his guilty conscience working on him. When he hears about this new preacher, who's not just preaching now, but, but doing miracles and doing incredible things, he wonders, is this like some ghost avenger? Is this this supernatural person raised from the dead returned to judge me? Uh, and so because of Herod's reaction, Matthew takes us on a bit of a flashback, you know, like in the TV show when it shows you what's happened in the past. Well, that's what, what happens here. Here's a flashback of what happened to John the Baptist. And that look starts at verse 3. So look with me at this little story. Now, the issue was Herod had divorced his first wife and married, not just married another woman, but married his brother's wife, Herodias, which is, besides being immoral, it's against the Old Testament law. Uh, and so John the Baptist had preached against that. He'd called Herod to repent. John the Baptist was, was fearless uh, and he'd said, you are sinning, even though you're the king, I don't care, you're sinning. And you can imagine Herod didn't like that. So he had John arrested. He wanted to kill him, but John was too popular. Look at verse 5. It says, though he wanted to kill him, he feared the crowd since they regarded him as a prophet. But then came this opportunity, this, this famous birthday feast. It was Herod's birthday party and his wife's daughter danced for him. Now, I'm not going to spell it out for you, but you can guess what sort of dance this was. These people were incredibly debauched. This is his wife's daughter. Uh, and so here it is, and I can't even think of the right word, let's say amazed. He's so amazed by her dance that he promises her anything that she wants. And so her mother, who obviously hates John even more than Herod did, uh, she says, look at verse 8, prompted by her mother, she answered, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. That's where we get the saying from, by the way, about having something presented on a platter. And so even though the king doesn't want to do it, even though he doesn't want to, to cut off John's head, he, he can't lose face in front of all his guests at the party. They've heard him made the promise. And so he has John beheaded and he gives John's head to the girl and to her mother. Now, as I say, if you were at this meal, you would never forget it, but sadly, for the wrong sorts of reasons. It's worth asking, why is this story here? You know, why has Matthew included this in his gospel? Well, firstly, it tells us what happened to John the Baptist. Because we've had a six-month break since we saw the first half of Matthew's gospel to now, we might have forgotten this, but John the Baptist just seemed to have sort of faded away. He just sort of dropped out of the story. So this tells us this is what happened to him. And it's important because John's death meant the focus switched to Jesus which is exactly what John wanted the whole time. John said, no, I don't want the light on me. I want you to know Jesus. And that's what happened. But secondly, I think this is a picture. It's here because it's a picture of the way our world responds to God's prophets. It's a picture of the way our world responds to people who preach the gospel. Very few of the Old Testament prophets were popular in their own time. 
We look back and we go, Elijah was amazing, Isaiah was amazing, Jeremiah was amazing. At the time, they were hated. You can read the stories of the Old Testament prophets. Very few of them were popular. They were persecuted. Often they were put to death. When you preach God's word and when you invite people to repent if they want to find forgiveness, some people respond positively, which is wonderful. That's why you're here tonight, I take it. Because you have heard that message and said, yes, I need God's forgiveness. I want to repent and turn and trust in Jesus. Others hate it and say, you know, who are you to tell me I'm a sinner? Don't you judge me. Don't you tell me I'm a sinner. That was Herod and his wife. And of course, what happened to John is exactly what then happened to Jesus. And it's actually amazing to see the parallels where another weak leader, this time Pontius Pilate, another weak leader gives in and puts Jesus to death rather than listen to his message. So this little story just reminds us of that truth, reminds us, yes, the gospel is good news for people who recognise they need it, but for people who don't think they need God's forgiveness, well, often the gospel will create offence. And if you follow Jesus faithfully, and in particular, if you share Jesus faithfully, sometimes you will experience that response. Every Christian will experience that response. Paul promises it, look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 on the screen, It says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Praise God, we won't all face what John faced. But the reality is, anyone who faithfully seeks to follow Jesus will face struggles and opposition. Do not be surprised by it. Don't be put off by it. But, and John knew this, any struggles, any suffering, any opposition we face in this life is not worth comparing to the joy of knowing Jesus. Anything we face is not worth comparing to what we look forward to with Jesus in all eternity. And that's where the second meal comes in. So come with me now, the second meal which I've called the heavenly banquet and this is verses 13 to 21. So verse 13, it says, when Jesus heard about it, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. So Jesus, I don't think it's hearing about Herod's uh, killing of John the Baptist, that had happened quite some time ago, it's hearing about Herod's interest in him, Jesus knows not yet time for me to get put to death like John, that's going to happen in the future, so he withdraws for a while. Uh, But by this point, Jesus couldn't get very far without the crowds following him. And and so even though he'd gone across the lake by boat, the people followed around the shore of the lake wherever his boat went. So when he got off the boat, they were there, even though he'd gone across on the boat to get away from them. Sort of reminds me of when our kids, sorry, some of my kids are here tonight, but when our kids were little and Victoria would just be exhausted and she'd just want to get away from them. That mightn't be nice, but you know what I mean. And, and, and she'd go in a room and they'd then be hammering on the door wanting to get in. And you see this with mothers. You see it if you teach kids church sometimes. The mother drops the, the kid off and then runs out after, him, after her, chasing her. That's what it's like with Jesus. But there's just this wonderful insight into the love of Jesus at verse 14. Even though all Jesus wants is some what we call me time, look at verse 14. As he stepped ashore, he saw a huge crowd felt compassion for them and healed their sick. This is one of those golden little moments in the Gospels where you just get an insight into the heart of Jesus. It was compassion for the people that drove Jesus to give up his desire to be alone, to love and serve these people. And I think it's purposely put straight after the story of Herod because you cannot help but compare worldly leaders like Herod 
Herod holding a decadent birthday party for the elite of society. Herod who cuts off a man's head just to please people. Jesus gets out of a boat to heal the sick. Jesus feeds the crowds rather than send them away. Even though Jesus could be served, deserved to be served, he came to serve. That's the Lord that we follow. Of course, that is what should set his disciples apart as well, isn't it? What does Jesus say? They'll know you are my disciples by your love, because you love one another. Compassion and love, giving up our own comfort for the good of others, that is the mark of Jesus and it should be the mark of his followers as well. But back to the story. As evening comes, there's a problem. It says they're out in the wilderness. There's, there's no towns around. There's nowhere to find food. So the disciples try and get Jesus to be a bit practical. We just stop preaching a bit early, Jesus, so that they can go and find some food in, in some towns around the place. So verse 15, they say, Jesus, send the crowds away so they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But I love it when Jesus does this. His answer throws them. Look at verse 16. They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. I love it when he does that to the disciples. And just imagine them all at that point, they look at each other, I mean, you know, what does he expect us to do? We've got nothing and even pulling all their resources, they only get five small loaves and, and a couple of fish, they can't feed all these people. If you look at the end there, it says there were 5,000 men, that means there were probably 10 or 15 or 20,000 people in total when you include the women and children as well and so Jesus steps up, look at verse 18, bring them here to me, he said. Then he commanded the crowds to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. That is, basically, he says grace. It's what the father of the household would do before the meal. Uh, but here, the family is thousands of people. Uh, the common Jewish prayer of blessing from their time went like this. It was, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. See, by praying a blessing, by saying grace, if you like, he was recognising everything comes from God. God deserves the praise for whatever you get, even the smallest meals. But this was no small meal. Verse 19 again, look there. It says, he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowd. So remember, five loaves and two fish. This is going to be tiny portions. Look like when you go to those fancy restaurants, you ever notice that? that the, the more you pay for your meal, the bigger the plate, but the smaller the meal. Have you noticed that? They put a tiny little thing in the middle and then they smear some sauce on the side or something like that. You've got to go to Macca's on the way home. Well, that's all anyone could expect here. You know, a little bit of bread, a little bit of fish, but something amazing happens. Verse 20, everyone ate and was filled. And then they picked up 12 baskets full of leftover pieces. 10 or 20,000 people all fed and satisfied by five loaves and two fish with 12 basketfuls left over. I know you've probably heard this story many times before. Uh, you know, it's in all the children's Bibles. You've heard it thousands of times if you've been a Christian for any length of time. But I want, you to, I want to say, do not lose your amazement at Jesus. Don't take it for granted. This is an amazing miracle. And I think that is the first thing this story is meant to do for us. It's just meant to make us amazed by Jesus. It shows us the amazing power. This man is the Son of God. In the Old Testament, the prophet Elisha did a miracle where he fed a hundred men with 20 small loaves and had a bit left over. You can't help but compare that miracle, as amazing as that is, with this miracle. It's totally different. Only the Son of God could do this. But I think this miracle shows us more than that. 
Often when Jesus did miracles, they were like a great sermon illustration. He, he used them as a way to teach as well as to amaze, if you like. And here, I just want to draw out two things. The first is, they're coming on the screen. The first is, this miracle shows us that Jesus is drawing together a new people of God. A new people of God that you are now a part of. When Jesus stood up and said that blessing on behalf of thousands of people, that is what a father is meant to do for their family. And I pray that's what the fathers in our church do. I, say that I pray that fathers in our church lead their families in prayer. But this is a family of thousands. It's like Jesus is stepping up and saying, I am your father. And if you know your Old Testament well, when you read this story, you can't help but think of the way God fed his people in the wilderness in the book of Exodus. You can go and read Exodus 16 yourself later on. But when the Israelites had followed Moses out of slavery, when God had saved his people, they were there in the wilderness. They said, where are we going to find anything to eat? And what did God do? He gave them bread from heaven. Manna was called. For 40 years, every night, all they had to do was walk out of their tent in the morning and God gave them bread to eat. God provides for his people. And I think this story is purposely told to make you think about that story. Do you notice the way it continually talks about how they are out in the wilderness or in the desert? So look at verse 13, it says, they're in a remote place. And verse 15, this place is a wilderness, the disciples say. The idea is here is Jesus providing food for them, just like God did for his Old Testament people in the Exodus. And it's interesting too the way it stresses that there were 12 baskets left over at the end. That could just be saying there were heaps left over. But as we've seen in our studies in Revelation, 12 is the number of the people of God. There are 12 tribes in Israel, there are 12 apostles. You see, I think this is meant to make us realise this is Jesus drawing together a new Israel. But the way you become a part of the people of God now is not by being born a Jew, it's by coming and sitting at the feet of Jesus. The way you become a part of God's people now is coming and listening to Jesus, coming and following Jesus, and most importantly, allowing Jesus to provide for you. And you are a part of this people, this family, I pray you are at least, if you have come to follow Christ. And of course, if you haven't, if you're here tonight and you are someone who doesn't yet follow Jesus, I want to say to you, the invitation is open to you. Come and follow Jesus. Which leads to the second and final wonderful truth this miracle shows us, and that is that Jesus provides true life for his people. We don't know, in reality, most of us here, we don't quite get the connection between eating and living. We know it in theory, you've all done biology at school, you know, we, we get it in theory, but we eat for pleasure. We don't eat in order to survive the next day. We know it theoretically, but most of us have never gone hungry. We just, I'm hungry, I go to the fridge. I open it, it's magically been filled since last week. There it is, that's wonderful. When I uh, went to Kenya for a little while and I was teaching for a month in Kenya and I was living out in a rural part of the country and the people there didn't have very much and they incredibly graciously provided for me and fed me while I was teaching them. Uh, but we only had two meals a day and I can tell you the meals were not quite the normal meals I was used to. Uh, and I remember walking up at about 10.30 in the morning to start teaching and my, I had pains in my stomach and I thought, oh, have I got, please tell me I haven't got sick, I'd hate to be sick here, I'm miles from a hospital, I'm miles from a doctor. And then I realised, that's what hunger feels like. I just never really experienced it before. 
You see, we don't know this, but most people throughout history spend their day trying to find food so that they can eat tomorrow. That's what they do. So when they pray, give us today our daily bread, you know how when we pray that in the Lord's Prayer? Give us today our daily bread. They mean it. And that's why the Old Testament prophets, when they talk about heaven, one of the pictures of it is a place where the food never runs out. When they talk about heaven, it's a great banquet. It's a great feast. A place where you do not have to worry about your next meal anymore. God will provide with abundance. And we've seen that in the book of Revelation as well over these last six months. The great promise over and over again of the new creation and how there we will never be hungry. We will never be thirsty. God will meet our needs for all eternity. That's what this meal was pointing forward to. I'm sure at the time the people were just amazed that they didn't have to go into town and find some food to eat. But Jesus was not just offering to meet our needs for every day, he offers to meet our needs forever. I love the way Jesus puts it in John's Gospel, John 6, it's coming up on the screen. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. See, that is the great promise of the Gospel. And that's what this meal is pointing people forward to. Come and trust in Jesus and you will never know what it is to go without again because you will have eternal life. You will be with Jesus in that wonderful new creation where there is no more pain and no more suffering and no more hunger and no more brokenness and no more any of the horrible realities of our fallen broken world. That is the promise of the gospel. So my prayer for you all tonight and for me is that we know that hope and you are looking forward to that wonderful heavenly banquet where we will sit down with Jesus for all eternity. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that like John the Baptist, we will have the courage to stand firm for Jesus, even in the face of whatever opposition may come. But Father, we thank you that we look forward to something so wonderful. We look forward to eternal life with Christ. We will never hunger and never thirst again. And so Father, help us to be looking forward to that wonderful day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.